When you change what someone believes is possible, you change what becomes possible. And there's no bigger shift that can happen in someone's life than that. And welcome back to Off Record with your host, Corey Levy. Today, we speak to author and keynote speaker, Alex Benayan, who is well known for being the author of the highly anticipated book release of The Third Door, which covers a good part of a decade journey tracking down Bill Gates, Lady Gaga, Steven Spielberg, and dozens of the world's smartest and most successful people to uncover how they broke through and launched their careers. It's available in all bookstores right now, Amazon, iBooks, Audible, and also available through thirdbook.com. In this week's episode, he talks about coming up with the idea for his book as a college student, funding his book by hacking the prices right and winning, common traits of successful people he's interviewed, a two-year journey of landing an interview with Bill Gates, ineffective actions this generation does, and the writer's hack to overcome writer's block. There's that and many more. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Off Record. Why don't you tell all the listeners a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your new book? So for the past seven years, I've been on this quest tracking down some of the world's most successful people. And the way it started was I was 18 years old, a freshman in college, and I was spending every day lying on my dorm room bed, staring up at the ceiling. Corey, I don't know if you've like gone through the what I want to do with my life crisis. Because I know you got into tech pretty early, but I was going through it, man, and it was hitting me really hard. You know, to give some context, I'm the son of Jewish immigrants, which pretty much means I came out of the womb, my mom cradled me in her arms, and she stamped MD on my ass and sent me on my way. And, you know, like in third grade, I wore scrubs to school for Halloween, I went to pre-med summer camp, and by the time I got to college, I was the pre-med of pre-meds, but very quickly, I remember within just the first couple weeks, I was lying on this dorm room bed staring at these biology books, feeling like they were dementors sucking the life out of me. What did you do from there? So at first, you know, I just was going through this, what do I want to do with my life crisis? But eventually those questions began to evolve into how did all these people who I looked up to, how did they do it? You know, how did Bill Gates sell his first piece of software when nobody knew his name? How did Steven Spielberg, without any hits to his name, become the youngest major studio director in Hollywood history? These are the things they don't really teach you in school. So I just assumed the answers had to be out there. So I started reading a bunch of books looking for answers. But eventually I was left empty-handed. And that's when my naive 18-year-old thinking kicked in. And I thought, well, if no one's writing the book I'm dreaming of reading, why not just write it myself? You know, I thought it would be really easy. I would just call up Bill Gates, interview him, interview everyone else, and I'd be done in a couple months. I thought that would be the easy part. The hard part, I figured, was getting money to fund the journey. You know, I was buried in tuition payment. I was all out of bar mitzvah cash, so there had to be a way to make some money. So two nights before my freshman year final exams, I found tickets to The Price is Right. And the first thought that came to my mind was, what if I just go on the show and win some money to fund this dream? You know, it wasn't my brightest moment, but I thought if I just go on this show and win some money, I can go on these travels, I can go out and do all these interviews. But again, it was a horrible idea. I'd never seen a full episode of the show before, plus I had finals in a couple days. So that night, I remember sitting in the library at this little wooden table in the corner of the library, and the idea just wouldn't leave my mind. So to prove myself, Corey, I remember literally taking out my spiral notebook and making a pro and cons list of best and worst case scenarios. And for the worst case scenarios, you know, fail finals, get kicked out of pre-med, lose financial aid, mom hates me, mom stops talking to me, look fat on TV. There were 20 cons. And the only pro was maybe, maybe get enough money to fund this dream. Were you a freshman at the time? Yeah, I was a freshman, 18 years old, and I pretty much just started college. 
And how many people are in the Price is Right audience? I remember reading this part in the book, but for those who haven't read the book yet, how many people are in the audience of the Price is Right? How many people get selected for the potential to win money on the show? So there's about 300 people in the audience and only eight get called down. But out of the eight who get called down, one of them wins. What I realize is the odds of getting called down is much harder than once you're called down winning. So I focused, you know, that night I pulled an all-nighter to study, but I didn't study for finals. I studied how to hack the prices right. Pulling that all-nighter and figuring out the system, the next day I did this ridiculous strategy and ended up winning the entire showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling the sailboat, and that's how I funded the whole book. How'd you hack the strategy? I mean, you, you had a less than 1% chance <laughs> of winning the showcase showdown and, and you figure it out. And for someone who's never seen a full episode of the show, how did you hack the prices, right? So what I found out in my research, and you know, you can probably relate to this just with your own life experience in the sense that sometimes statistics can be really misleading because they're assuming that there's, you know, no ways to impact the variables. So what I realized during my all-nighter is that it's not random. Although you watch The Price is Right and they make it sound like it's a lottery, Corey, come on down, as if they pulled your name out of a hat. What I learned is that there's a producer who interviews every single person in the audience before the show begins. And on top of that, there's also an undercover producer. So when I got to The Price is Right studio the next morning, I was you know, dressed up in colorful clothes and I got there. But the second I got there, I had no idea who the undercover producer was. So I just had to assume everyone was the undercover producer. So I'm dancing with old ladies, like kissing the custodians. I'm breakdancing and I don't know how to breakdance. And after about an hour of waiting in line outside the studio, it's finally my turn to be interviewed by the producer. And I knew all about the producer. I knew his name was Stan my all-nighter, I learned like where he went to school, where he grew up, and I knew that he has a clipboard, but it's never in his hands. It's in his assistant's hands who's sitting about 10 feet behind him. And if Stan likes you, he'll ask you some more questions. And if he really likes you, he'll turn around, wink to his assistant, and she'll write your name on the clipboard. If the price is right, it was a nightclub, Stan's the bouncer. So I'm standing there, and Stan is walking up and down the line, and he's going, what's your name? Where are you from? What do you do? So he gets to me, and I go, hey, I'm Alex. I'm 18 years old, I'm a freshman in college, and I'm pre-med. And, and he goes, wait, pre-med, you must spend a lot of time studying. How do you have time to watch The Price is Right? And I go, oh, is that where I am? Literally, the joke just falls flat. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no response. And, you know, I realize I'm losing him. So I had read in one of these, I think it was like a Tony Robbins book that said human contact speeds of a relationship. So I had this idea. I needed to touch Stan. So... I'm like, Stan, come over here. I want to make a handshake with you. So very reluctantly, he comes over and we make a handshake and I teach him how to pound it and blow it up. And he says, good luck and walks over to the next person. He doesn't ask me any more questions. He doesn't look back to his assistant and she doesn't write anything down. Just like that, it's over. I don't know if you've ever had one of those feelings where like your biggest dream, you can see it like literally walking away from you, slipping through your hands like sand. Do you have any backup plans right now or is this like, all right, this is it? No, I only had plan A. So when he walked away, it was devastating. And I don't know what got into me, but I just felt this rumbling inside my stomach. And I just started yelling at the top of my lungs, Stan! And the entire audience turns around. Stan runs over at me as if I'm having a seizure. And he's like, are you okay? Are you okay? What's going on? And I'm just looking at him and I have no idea what I'm going to say next. So I'm looking at him. He's looking at me. And, you know, he's typical Hollywood with a turtleneck and a goatee and a red scarf. And I just look at him and I'm like, Stan, your scarf. And now I really don't know what I'm going to say next. Hmm. So, 
the only thing that comes out of my mouth is I look at him with all the seriousness I can and I just go, Stan, I'm an avid scarf collector. I have 362 pairs in my dorm room and I'm missing that one. Where did you get it? And he starts cracking up. And a part of me thinks that he knew what I was really doing and he was laughing more at why I was doing it. Right. You know, he gives me his scarf. He's like, look, you need this more than I do. And he turns around and his assistant makes a mark on the checkboard. That's awesome. Yeah. So from there, you know, the line continues and I'm waiting in line and I see this woman walking around, younger woman with a laminated badge in her back pocket. And I think, you know, this has to be the undercover producer. So I start, you know, blowing her kisses and I start dancing and she starts laughing and I, you know, blow her some more kisses and she takes out a sheet of paper from her pocket. So my name tag and makes a mark. So at this point, you would think I feel on top of the world, but that's when I realized I had spent the entire night prior studying how to get on the show. I still didn't know how to play. So, you know, not a problem. I take out my phone and I Google how to play The Price is Right. I still have about an hour before the show starts. 30 seconds later, I feel a tap on my shoulder and security takes the phone away. Ooh. So at this point, you know, there's no plan B and I just – I sit down on this metal bench and I just – start complaining there was this old lady sitting next to me with silver gray hair and she asked me what's wrong and i just vent i tell her about this dream i tell her about the book and i tell her i've never seen a full episode of the show before and she just pinches my cheeks and goes oh honey i've been watching the show for 40 years and i ask her for advice and she goes you remind me of my grandson and she starts giving me this incredible advice and decades of wisdom starts downloading into my head and that's when the light bulb went off inside of, you know, I give her a hug. I say, thank you. And I turn to the person next to me and I go, hey, I'm Alex. I'm 18. I've never seen the show before. Do you have any advice? Then I jump to a group of people, then to another group of people. And over the course of an hour, I talked to almost half the audience. And before I know it, the doors to the studio open. When you walk in there, the place still smells like the 1970s. You know, there's yellow and green drapes. There's flashing lights. Like all that's missing is a disco ball. And I don't know if you want me to go into the full details of what happens on the show, but it ends up being this like ridiculous adventure that the lessons from The Price is Right, without me knowing, foreshadowed so many of the lessons over the past seven years of writing this book. That's awesome. And so you ended up winning the showcase. You won, how much was it, 30 grand? The showcase was 30 grand, and I sold the sailboat and used the cash to fund all the adventures. Got it. And that was when you were a freshman in college. What did your parents think of all of this? <laughs> well, in the beginning, when I won the prices right, they didn't know I was planning on, you know, using the cash to drop out of pre-med and eventually leave school and fund this adventure. So when they heard the price is right, you know, they were jumping up and down. And I remember my dad was dancing in the living room. We have a sailboat. We have a sailboat. <laughs> but I ended up selling the boat and using the cash. And you know, when you're in college and you're living in the dorms and, you know, the most expensive thing you're getting is, you know, Chipotle for lunch, you know, thousands of dollars last year, a very long time. Right. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the interviews that you had. You interviewed Bill Gates, Steve Wozniak, Jessica Alba, Tim Ferriss, Pitbull, and many others. What were some of the you know, common things that all the interviewees had? So when I set out to write the book, I wasn't looking for a common thread. You know, we've all seen the TED Talks or those business books that say, you know, the one key to success and you sort of just roll your eyes. But after going on this quest and doing all these interviews, I started to realize I don't know if you're a big music fan, but there was almost a common melody in all the stories I was hearing. And the analogy that came to me, because I was 21 at the time, was it's sort of like getting into a nightclub, 
What I've realized is every single person I interview treats life, business, and success in the exact same way. You know, there's the first door to get into the nightclub where the line curves around the block. You know, it's the main entrance and everyone just waits in line hoping to get in. And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance where the billionaires and the celebrities go through. You're born into that line. And when no one tells you, for some reason, school and society have this way of making you feel like those are the only two ways in. But what I've learned is that there's always, always the third door. And it's the door where you jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way in. And it doesn't matter if that's how Gates sold his first piece of software or how Lady Gaga got her first record deal. They all took the third door. So that's not only the thesis of the book and the title of the book. That's really the energy I'm trying to inject into the next generation. And I imagine you had to take a number of third doors. Like, Let's, let's talk about Bill Gates. <laughs> how on earth do you get an interview with Bill Gates? So to my surprise, Bill Gates doesn't normally do interviews <laughs> with 18-year-olds, so it's a lot harder than I had expected. It took an entire year to finally get on the phone with Bill Gates' chief of staff. You know, he's the right hand who pretty much runs everything in Bill's life. So it took a whole year to just schedule a five-minute phone call with Gates' chief of staff. And I had met some people at Microsoft who believed in the mission enough to help arrange that phone call. So at this point, I'm a sophomore in college, I'm 19, and I'm standing in a CVS parking lot with an ice cream cone in my hand. And my phone buzzes, and I see this Seattle area code, and I know exactly who it is. And I pick up the phone, and I hear, so you want to interview Bill, huh? And on the phone is Bill Gates' chief of staff. And of course, you know, I tell him it's my biggest dream, and he goes, look, I no need to tell me about it. I already have heard all about it, and I think what you're doing is great. I love that you're doing it to help your generation. But... You're only about 5% there. He said, you know, go get a publishing deal with either Penguin or Random House. Go build more momentum and call me later and hangs up. So that then sets me off on this eight-month quest of getting a book publishing deal, which I end up getting. And then still when I reached back out to Gates, the chief of staff, the interview didn't happen. So what I realized is I needed to build more momentum. So I got more interviews. But what really clinched getting the interview with Gates was advice I got from Larry King. And what Larry taught me is that while the internet has changed the world, it hasn't changed human beings. And our generation is so comfortable, you know, sending emails, you know, hitting someone up on Instagram DM that we many times forget about the power of seeing someone, looking them in the eye, seeing them in person and just, you know, bearing your heart out to them. So Larry's advice inspired me to try to meet Bill Gates' chief of staff in person. And I knew he was going to be at the TED conference that year in Long Beach, which wasn't too far from where I lived. So I spent weeks, you know, emailing Gates, the chief of staff, trying to set up a meeting. And finally, the day before the conference, I got an email at, I remember, 7.27 p.m. And it said, yes, I'll be at the conference. And yes, I'd like to see you. So Corey, I'm like, I'm there the next morning. You know, all the pressure's on. This is pretty much two years of my life has led to this moment. I'm waiting there. He said to meet him at the espresso bar. So I'm sitting at the espresso bar of the Westin Hotel, which is the main hotel of the TED conference. And we were set to meet at 10.15 in the morning. I get there early and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and it's 10.15, then it's 10.30. Can you email him at 10.15 or are you just waiting at the bar? I just, you know, he's busy. I just assumed that he had to talk to someone or he was running a little late. You know, it's not a huge deal. But by 10.45, I started to get worried and I started to, it dawned on me that he wasn't going to come. And I was just devastated. And I looked up his email and saw the phone number for his assistant. And I gave her a call and I tried to, you know, take some deep breaths. 
and I, I call her and she answers and I say, look, I'm, I'm so grateful that he even agreed to the meeting and I completely understand and I'm sure he must be busy, but I just wanted to make sure everything's okay because he never showed up. And the assistant goes, what, what are you talking about? He called me and said, you never showed up. And that's when I found out there were two espresso bars, one at the hotel, one at the convention center, and I was at the wrong one. Yikes. And I just, oh my God, I just started uncontrollably crying on the phone with it as much as I was trying to hold it in just tears formed in my eyes and I start you know gushing to this assistant telling her everything it took to make this meeting happen and she's like look 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 Alex give me a few minutes let me see what I can do sure enough she sends me an email saying the chief of staff has agreed he's going in his town car to the airport this afternoon and he's agreed to let you ride in the car with him to the airport so my five-minute meeting turned into a 45-minute meeting and as soon as I got in the car with Gates' chief of staff, you know, I'm, I'm sweating. And he goes, so I, I take you, you still want to interview Bill? And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's, it's my biggest dream. And he goes, well, have you been making momentum? And I always in my wallet, I would carry a small note card with all the names of people who I wanted to interview with green check marks next to the names of the people who I did interview. And he goes, you know, he holds the note card in his hand. I, I hand it to him and he starts reading it almost as if it's this report card. And he's going, oh, Larry King, that must have been a good one. Ah, oh, Dean Kamen, we know him well. Oh, and right as he's about to say the next name, again, another uncontrollable feeling within me just makes me go, it's not about the names. And he looks at me sort of bewildered. And I just, I just say, it's not about the names. It's about, well, I just believe that if, if all these people come together, you know, not for press, not to promote anything, but really just to share their wisdom with the next generation, young people can do so much more. And he's like, all right. And he slices his hand up in the air and he goes, we're in. And that's how Gates' interview came to be. That's awesome. So two years of work, you finally are able to get Bill Gates into a room. What happens next? What advice does Bill have for our generation? So when I went in to interview Bill Gates, the thing that I was the most curious about is in all my research with him, he is one of the most strategic minds alive today. And if you study the way Microsoft started, some of the most pivotal moments came from just really brilliant moves that Bill made in the negotiating and sales processes that allowed him to make billions off of his deals with IBM and HP and whatnot. So I went in there, you know, looking for this holy grail of business advice that would come out of Bill Gates's mouth. And the second I put it in the book, it would just revolutionize the lives of millions of people. That's what I was expecting. And because I had spent, you know, two years building this up in my head. So I just really believe this holy grail of advice existed. So when I got into the interview with Bill, he was telling me incredible wisdom. But I was so obsessed with this very like preposterous idea of this holy grail that I wasn't able to understand the beauty of what he was saying. And only when I look back in hindsight can I see how wise he was. I kept asking for all this negotiating advice. And he kept telling me about, you know, with the person you're negotiating with, you know, go out to dinner with them, ask them for advice, ask them for book recommendations. And I'm getting like furious in this interview, wondering why he's not giving me real negotiating advice. And only in hindsight can I see that he was actually telling me that the negotiation happens before the negotiation begins. Because if someone's given you advice, if someone's given you book recommendations, if someone's invested in you and becomes a mentor to you, you don't even have to negotiate. They want you to win. And that was something I never could have expected coming out of Bill Gates. Very cool. And and how how has this book changed your life? You know, you wrote the book, you've done all these interviews. How have you changed over the last several years? So the book has changed my life in 
more ways that I can say, not only in the people who I've met along the journey, who have some of them have become like family to me, but my outlook on life has changed. The biggest thing the book gave me, while it gave me unbelievable advice and tools and tactics that I've used over the years, the biggest gift of this journey is that it changed what I believe is possible. And what I've learned is that when you change what someone believes is possible, you change what becomes possible. And there's no bigger shift that can happen in someone's life than that. Because while you can give someone all the best tools and knowledge in the world, their life can still feel stuck. But if you change what someone believes is possible, their life will never be the same. What's like an example of that? Like what did you think was not possible prior to this journey? A big one that happened without me consciously knowing happened with how I relate to people who I really, really admire. And there's something about, you know, sitting across from Bill Gates, who the media does a really good job of making him look like this, you know, superhuman. Whether it's Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg or Barack Obama, the media does this really powerful job in making these. They're not even on a pedestal. They're like above the pedestal. And what I've learned is that, and there's a great quote from Maya Angelou that captures this perfectly, which says, you know, you're a human being and no one can be more human than you and no one can be less human than you. And when you realize that every single person who you admire, everyone who you look up to, everyone who's done something that's changed the world and impacted your life is a person just like you. And they're no more human than you are. It empowers you in a way that no, you know, little hack can empower you. And that's changed the way I not only view myself, but I view, I view everyone around me. I think what have you seen like friends, colleagues, this generation, what, what are some ineffective things that you've seen this generation do. You know, a lot of people, especially in the entrepreneur space or people who are hustling in the beginning of their careers or even later in their careers, a big thing that people do, which is great, is cold emailing others. One of the biggest mistakes that I've learned, and I learned this the hard way, and thankfully, Tim Ferriss in my interview with him helped me realize how wrong I was in my approach, was there's a such thing when you're cold emailing someone or reaching out to them as being over-persistent. You know, every business book talks about how persistence is the key to success. Never give up. But there's never a disclaimer saying that there's a such thing as over-persistence and that can be even more dangerous. And if there's one thing I could, you know, leave people with is realizing that while persistence is incredibly important and you won't achieve a dream without it, there's a huge difference between banging on one door a thousand times and having people want to call security on you. Versus, you know, banging on the door a few times, no one answers. All right, checking the window. All right, making friends with the bouncer. Okay, maybe call. There's a huge difference. And I had to learn that lesson the hard way. What are some other like, you know, if you were to go back in time and write this book or version two of this book, what would be the things that you would do to save time? What have you learned most from, you know, your network, from your mentors that have helped you through this journey? Well, when it comes to the lessons in the book... You know, I would have put more emphasis on the emotional, and there's already a lot in there. You've read the book. You've seen there's a lot of focus on the emotional tolls of pursuing a dream. And, you know, you've been an entrepreneur for like almost 10 years now, so you know what it, what toll it takes inside. I would have focused even more on that because I've realized, you know, there is so much information out there about, you know, you can, you can Google and read thousands or if not hundreds of articles on Bill Gates. But it's really that I'm curious about. And if I were to go back and interview him again, I would focus on how he dealt with that emotional struggle of 
you have a dream and you have a vision and things aren't working out. And that's what I would really uh, bring out more because I feel the thing that makes people wait in line at the first door versus take the third door really comes down to a fear of the unknown of what will happen when they ditch the line and run down the alley. Because taking the third door is a lot easier once you're already running down the alley and you have no choice but to make it happen when you're, you know, survival's on the line. It's a lot harder when you're standing in line at the first door and you're comfortable and all your friends are there and your family expects you to be there. So it's those emotional aspects that I think are sometimes the hardest hurdles when it comes to achieving a dream. Got it. And I want to talk briefly about I remember this topic in the book, like borrowing credibility. What is that? What does that mean? How did that help you when you were, you know, 18, 19 years old writing this? During my interview with Tim Ferriss, you know, I was asking him how someone gets credibility before they're credible, which it's, it's a pretty tricky catch 22. You know, if you want to be an author or a writer, most people want to only publish writers who have written other things, but how do you get your first thing published? So it's this very tricky situation. And what Tim Ferriss told me is that it's, not rocket science. You know, and the internet makes it a lot easier. And it could be as simple as doing Q&As in well-known publications and having those publications in your byline. It can be volunteering for free for well-known organizations. When Tim was just starting out, he volunteered for the Silicon Valley Association of Startup Entrepreneurs. So while all of his friends who had just graduated college with him were saying, hey, I'm so-and-so a recent college grad, Tim was able to email best-selling authors and other people he admired and say, hi, my name is Tim Ferriss and I'm a producer for the Silicon Valley Association of Startup Entrepreneurs. So those little things actually make a big difference when you're just starting out. And the phrase that stuck in my mind, like you mentioned, it was called borrowed credibility. And the idea is that it wasn't that Tim Ferriss was starting his own company or his own organization. He was associating himself with you know, reputable sources that made other people trust him. And that made a huge difference. What were some of the other life hacks like that that you've learned from from writing the book? Some great hacks early on. You know, some of them haven't even been in the book. They just they came from the process of putting the book together. Let's talk about those. So one that I is my favorite hack because it's so like the opposite of a hack comes from how to write. And you know, myself as well as most other people, if you're writing a blog post or writing something, you're you know typing on your laptop, but Every time I was studying Maya Angelou, she swore by writing on yellow legal pads. And, you know, at first I thought, well, she's just saying that because she grew up in a time before laptops. So I sort of ignored it. And then I saw an article about how Barack Obama writes his State of the Union. And I saw pictures of him writing it on on yellow legal pads. And that made me a bit more curious because, you know, Obama's a very tech forward person. So that was interesting that he was writing it again on yellow legal pads. And then I read this article from Jerry Seinfeld where he just, you know, is doing this whole bit about how evil a laptop is. You're sitting there, you open Microsoft Word, and this white light is just shining in your eye like an interrogation. It's almost like, you know, a police interrogation. This white light is shining in your eye. And then this little cursor just keeps blinking at you, taunting you. Come on, big shot. Come on, big shot. Let's see what you got. And it's just this very, like, hostile environment. So. I just thought, all right, let me give it a week. And this is in the beginning of writing the book. I was like, all right, let me give it a week and just try this whole yellow legal pad situation. Because again, Seinfeld wrote all of Seinfeld using yellow legal pads. So I was like, let me see what would happen. And I started not using my laptop and I started writing the entire book that week by hand with a pen and a yellow legal pad and everything changed. 
my writing style changed, writers, my writer's block changed. And what I realized is when you're writing on the yellow legal pad, you know, there's no intimidation because if you don't like something, you can literally rip it out, crumble it and throw it at the wall. <laughs> like you can really own that yellow legal pad, whereas a computer is this very like expensive piece of technology that you're at the mercy of. And an article I read about Spielberg actually helps shine some light onto why this hack works. And it actually has to do with the way the brain works. Spielberg was talking about how at a certain point in his career, digital film was very prevalent, but he still preferred printing out the film and walking it over to the editing room. And other directors would laugh at him, but he, he still liked printing out the film. And his explanation was that in the time it took for the film to print, for him to hold it in his hands, for him to walk it over to the editing bay, an idea would come to him that would completely enhance the movie. And I think that's part of the creative process is having that negative space and having that empty time. And when you're at your computer and when you're, ha you know, you're writing on your phone or your laptop, you have the entire world's knowledge at your fingertips and you can do anything you want. And it sort of jams your brain from being creative when a yellow legal pad completely opens it up. So that's been the biggest writing hack by far which is not having the first draft not written using any technology. And it's changed the entire way I write moving forward. That's awesome. Where can people find this book? So it's available everywhere books are sold. So Amazon, iBooks, Audible, and the main book website is thirddoorbook.com, T-H-I-R-D, thirddoorbook.com. And on there, if, if they end up ordering the book there's a bunch of cool bonuses if you buy one copy or three copies or 10 copies so it's really fun and if you end up you know buying the book by listening to this podcast definitely tweet at me at alex benayan a-l-e-x-b-a-n-a-y-a-n so i know you heard of it through Corey's podcast and dude thank you again for having me this was really fun yeah of course Thank you once again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Alex Benayan. Thank you so much again, Alex, for coming on the show. Love the concept of the third door, and it's definitely how our generation should approach hurdles in achieving our dreams. You can find all of his links in the description. You can also follow your host, Corey Levy, on Twitter at Corey. Thank you once again for listening. We have episodes coming out every Tuesday. And other than that, stay tuned, and we'll see you next week on Off Record.